0: A parasha in the Torah is not just a chapter that happens to talk about a particular theme. Sometimes there are many themes in a particular parasha, but the name of that parasha represents all of those themes and the common thread that runs through them all. So it may well be that chronologically last week's parasha and this week's parasha may be more connected than two parts of this week's parasha. But conceptually, thematically, all of the pieces of this parasha are very deeply connected together and we have to understand what that common thread is. So when you look at parasha's shmini, of course you hear the shmini, shmini, the eighth, well that implies that there's something which comes before the seven days of preparation in the previous parasha before the mishkan became live. Yet, at the same time, shmini, eight is a number which is completely beyond the here and now, beyond the, the ordinary, beyond the natural. And so, in this parasha, the overarching theme is actually going to be the number eight, that which transcends. And yet it's not said as eight, it's said as eighth, which means that somewhere in this parasha we have to see that which transcends the normal cycle of seven is somehow linked to that cycle. And we'll see that play out in the fact that the parasha speaks about, on the one hand, these lofty ideals of the launching of the Mishkan, And on the other hand, such pragmatic down-to-earth things like what foods you may not eat. And all of this is going to teach us a lesson that ultimately the purpose of Judaism is to bring the greatest holiness into the most mundane reality. In fact, not to bring it in, but to expose that it is already there. We're not in the business of superimposing holiness over the world. We're in the business of illustrating how the world, even in its darkest expression, is actually all designed only to express godliness. The Rebbe says it's been explained many times that the fifty-three separate parishes of the year, the way the Torah is divided up, even though each sedra, what we, we often call the parsha, has many sub-parishes, often on separate themes. The very fact that we have all of these chapters read in a single stream on a particular Shabbos under the name of a particular Sedra, that tells us that they are all linked and they all share a primary theme. Now, we have a golden rule which says that the Hebrew name, or more specifically the Holy Tongue name that is given to anything, tells us the essence of what it's all about. Move on, whatever the central theme is of this entire section of Torah will always be represented by and illustrated in the name that is given to this particular seder. Now, sometimes you might find that the beginning of this week's parasha and the end of this week's parasha have less in common than, say, the beginning of this week's parasha and the end of the previous week's parasha. Particularly when you see that things are chronologically linked because we know that the fact that things are juxtaposed in Torah is in fact a way to learn Torah. So the end of last week's parasha is not accidentally next to the beginning of this week's parasha. There will be a link there too. kam But if I look at let's say rishon of the parasha and shvi of the parasha, there might be a far larger gap in space, in time, and in theme. Mikol mokhem nevertheless. And akudam mishutef asanal yeshnat dafke b'parasha is and smuchois shem bois Nevertheless, we will see that the line that runs, the stream that runs through all of the events of the parsha, are more strongly linked in the same sedra than they are in two consecutive pieces from two different sedras. So that's the general principle. Now we'll apply it to our parsha of Shmini. So we have to apply this directly to our parasha. Logically, the beginning of our parasha, which says, and on the eighth day, sounds much closer to the end of the previous parasha, which said the seven days of preparation. That sounds a whole lot closer than, for example, the link between the eighth day of inaugurating the Mishkan And the list of kosher and non-kosher animals. Because logically, the eighth day follows the seven days discussed in the previous parasha. Yet, it doesn't seem to have anything at all to do with the laws of kosher and non-kosher animals, birds, and fish. Move on. So, nevertheless, in spite of what appears to be the obvious link between the two parishes, Tzav and Shmini, we're going to say that there is a deeper connection between the beginning of Shmini and the story of the kosher, non kosher animals, that is even more profound than the connection between the seven days of preparation and the eighth day of inauguration. And all of this, this is all going to be represented by and alluded to in the name of the parsha, which is lemiluim. Now, let's just clarify for a second, even though we know the history, and we know that Shmini follows, that there were seven days of preparing the Mishkan, and now it's the eighth day. But when you look at it just in isolation, in this parsha, there's nothing about the name Shmini that tells you it is directly linked to the previous parsha. Again, there's nothing in the name of the parasha. Maybe the full sentence of the opening pasuk. Maybe. But the name of the parasha does not illustrate any connection to the seven days of Tzav. In fact, for that matter, the name of the parasha doesn't even tell you that it's an eighth day. It's just Shmini, eighth. Without any specific association. Eighth what? So move on. So that tells you straight away that the name Shmini is to illustrate the overarching concept of an eighth in any series rather than the specific eighth day of this series. Now, based on what we said earlier on in the Sikha, that you will see a greater correlation between the early and later parts of the same parsha than between this parasha and the immediately preceding parsha. Nimta comes out. So then we have to say that everything we read about in the previous parasha, the seven days that built up to Yom Shmini, that was only preparatory, that was introductory. Now all of that introduction is complete, so a new entity is launched, a new concept is introduced. The concept of Shmini. It's very clear that that seven-day period is no longer and is not relevant now that we've moved to the Shmini. It's It's a new, fresh entity. As you can understand very simply, seven days of initiating the Mishkan is only there as an introduction to the eighth day when it goes live for real. So, the seven days of Miluim from the previous parasha are introductory to Yom HaShemini, whereas the halachas of kosher, non-kosher animals, birds and fish, are part of the theme of Shmini. Now that we know that Shmini is a theme beyond just days, it's the concept of an eighth in a series, and we need to know what that means. V'yuvan. So in order to understand this, let's look at the paradox of the concept Shmini. So there are two very distinct differences between how you understand the concept of Shemini. On the one hand, the eighth implies that this is now a league of its own. There were seven steps up until this point, and the eighth step leaps off into a different reality. Like the Kriyokar says in our Pasha that the number 7 will always relate to things that belong to the natural order, including the spiritually natural order. Whereas the number 8 represents things that are unique to Hashem Himself. Different category, different league of existence. So, just to understand this a little bit better, it's not just that the number seven represents all of the cycles of things that exist within the natural reality, be that the physical or spiritually natural reality, but actually the number seven relates to the eloikos, to the flow of God, the energy that causes nature to exist. Whereas shmini represents A degree of godliness that is absolutely divorced from everything to do with creation and reality. It's a completely different higher, exponentially so level. So on the one hand Shmini represents something that's out of this world and out of the spiritual dimension and out of the created reality. On the one hand. On the other hand it's inescapable. However, the minute you say eighth you've automatically said this is not completely standalone; it's part of a series. In fact, you've highlighted by saying 8th that this follows the 7 steps of the original series and it comes as a result of or following from them. So Shmini is paradoxical. On the one hand, it's totally out of the ballpark beyond anything that we could understand in the Shvi'i reality, And on the other hand, it's a direct follow-on from the shvi reality. And it's exactly this which is so unique about Shmini. In fact, this is why Shmini represents the truest form of divine revelation. Because the ultimate state that Judaism wants us to achieve is that the degree of Helikus, which is completely beyond anything natural, should be manifest in a revealed way within the lowest natural reality. Total paradox, like Shmini is a paradox. It's completely beyond and completely within, simultaneously. (laughs) Medavazen... Now the word Shmini alludes to this. Shmini in a class of its own, and yet eighth of the series, related to the series, connected to the reality of this world. Now we need to understand exactly what that means, and we have to understand how, as we shall see, how this is not a superimposing of divine energy onto the world. That's why we're told that the harp in the time of Mashiach will have eight strings, meaning to say eight chords of music, which is different to the, to the musical scale that we know now. As the Navi yeshayah tells us, that the ultimate goal of Mashiach is not just revelation of godliness but that the physical eye will be able to see that godliness. The emphasis over here is not only that there will be an immense revelation of godliness, but specifically that the human eye will be able to see it, which means, means it's going to be a tangible, relatable, comfortable human experience. Exactly as we see normal things now. In fact, it would be so impressive, it would be so powerful, that it will actually become the most normal thing in the world. And by comparison, there were other times that Hashem revealed Himself in the world, and it wasn't necessarily normal, and it was actually quite overwhelming. For us, in the time of Mashiach, seeing godliness will be as ordinary as seeing whatever it is that you're looking at right now. So this is an incredible insight, because we've heard a million times that when Mashiach comes, there'll be tremendous revelation of godliness. But now we're learning that it's not only that there'll be revelation of godliness, but that it will be normal. It will be part and parcel of ordinary human experience. It will not be mind-altering or mind-shattering. It will just be what we do. Shittas, the most normal thing. Like you look at a tree swaying in the wind, like you look at your computer screen right now, so you will look at godliness in the time of Mashiach. Now, to understand that better. Now, there's another alternative, which is, Hashem can do anything. And therefore, Hashem could reveal Himself in such a way that even your eye could see it. It wouldn't be natural to you, but you'd see it. That would be similar, maybe, to what happened when the Jews were walking through the Yamsuf. So, you see godliness. And it's not a common thing. It's like, wow, Maribet's boy. Stop pointing a finger and saying, I'm seeing something I should not be seeing. I'm not even sure that I understand what I'm seeing. Because it's an unnatural and, for that reason, temporary experience. When it comes to the time of Mashiach, it's not going to be that Hashem makes Elekos visible to humans. Rather, He wants it to be that it is normal for humans. So, right? so, if we're going to have an experience like they had at Har Sinai, or like they had at the time of Kriyas Yamsuf, they absolutely saw Godliness, but it was a wow moment. So wow at Matan Torah that their bodies were flung back a distance of 12 kilometers, and their souls popped out of their bodies. That's how wow it was. So, so, any previous experience that we've ever read about or learned about of revelation of godliness is there is the world, normal people, and then something is superimposed onto their experience, and suddenly their eyes are open to a reality which normally they wouldn't be able to see. So, they're completely taken in the moment. It uplifts and inspires them completely, and then it ends, and they go back to normal life where they start to see things again as you and I see them. So what's going to happen in the time of Moshiach is not great revelation of Hashem only. It's a remodeling of the human retina that you can now perceive in a normal, natural way. Okay? And it will be no more surprising Than the fact that you could look out And see a beautiful sunset it's, part of, it's now part of my physical reality Now this is an incredibly important insight To appreciate That we're not looking forward To a time in the future Where Hashem just pulls back the veil And blasts us with divine energy we're looking forward to a time where we resonate with that reality. It becomes normal to us. It becomes accessible to us. Which helps us to understand why the number that symbolizes the time of Mashiach, as in this expanded musical scale, is the number eight. Because the concept of being able to have divine revelation that the eye can see in the time of Mashiach. That's that itself shows us this incredible paradox, the radical paradox, represented by the number eight. On the one hand, On the one hand, you're saying it's a revelation of Hashem's absolute power and, and, and um, energy, which the world should never be able to tolerate. Even the spiritual world should be unable to tolerate. And on the other hand, on the other hand, as the number eight represents, it's part of a process, and part of that process means that it's 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 comfortable. I'm at home. In, in other words, our experience at the time of Mashiach will be even greater than the experience of a Navi. Because a Navi, as the Rambam tells us, has to first prepare themselves in order to reach the state of Nevoah. And even if they do reach the state of Nevoah, on a case-by-case basis, they have to get into the right headspace in order to receive the Nevoah. And even then, they have to strip themselves of their involvement in this world in order to receive the Nevoah. So that tells you that it's, it's not actually a natural process. Whereas in the time of Mashiach, it will be as normal as ordinary as looking at anything else that exists so that's the paradox represented by the number eight totally beyond the world totally beyond anything we could relate to and yet completely relatable all at the same time that's the uniqueness represented by shemini now the question is that's very nice but surely hashem designed the world to be as it currently is in other words to obscure godliness so why is that going to change and surely that's the way it was intended. So how should it change? We need to understand the way of the world today that we do not see elikus. We don't even see the degree of elikus which. Powers our world. Forget about higher, lofty, infinite degrees of elikus We don't even see koye benifal. We don't see the pulsating energy of Hashem every single moment, keeping creation alive and pumping. So the fact that we don't see godliness now is not because there's some kind of an impediment, it's because that is the design of this world. It is designed that you don't see godliness so if that's the case then the fact that there's an obscuring of godliness a blurring of godliness in our world as a feature of the essence the nature of this world <laughs> that's why it's called oilam, because as we said at the beginning of the Sikha, the name of anything in lashana kodesh represents its very essence so oilam comes from the word helam which means to conceal that means that its essence its purpose is to conceal <laughs> so how is it logical then to say that in the time of moshiach my normal, natural human eye, which is part and parcel of the world, which is designed fundamentally to block godliness, to filter out godliness, how is it logically now going to become the apparatus by which I will see not just godliness, but ultimate godliness? Doesn't seem to make sense. So we'll explain this based on a quotation from Tanya a quotation that should be familiar to every chassid, although the Rebbe is going to highlight something about this quotation that sometimes we overlook. <laughs> the Rebbe explains that this incredible divine revelation that will occur in the time of Moshiach, and more so at the time of Tchias HaMesem, the al explains that that is completely dependent on our actions and dedication to Hashem's Torah mitzvahs through the course of galus. Through the course of galus, so why does the al have to say that it's reliant on our Torah mitzvahs through the course of galus? In other words, there were Torah mitzvahs before there was galus, and there will be Torah mitzvahs in the time of Mashiach. So why are we emphasizing dafka? Through the course of Golos. What is it about Golos that gives us a different and special flavor to our Torah mitzvahs that creates the opportunity for this great revelation? Surely the way that we bring about this incredible revelation of godliness is through doing Torah mitzvahs. The al Reb explains it right there and then in Tanya. He says, every single time we do a mitzvah, we draw down an incredible revelation of Hashem's infinite godliness into this physical world. So there you have it. The mitzvah does it. Why is it reliant on Golos? Surely mitzvahs are the key. Do mitzvahs reveal Hashem in the world? Why does the al say specifically be Through the course of the Golos. What's the connection to that time period? It's the facility of mitzvahs, the power of mitzvahs that brings about divine revelation in this world. It's not the time frame of Golos, surely. So what are we missing here? So one possible answer, and of course, if a Rebbe says, That is the explanation. It's just the Rebbe's Chiddush. The goal is not just revelation. We made that point clear already. It's not good enough just for Hashem to reveal Himself because He can, because He's infinite. Our eye has to see it in the most natural way. That's the goal. To infuse the physical with this incredible sense of the reality of of godliness so beherg if that's the case then beherg there's no question sham shakhs eli kos shada mitves sham shakhs shatave loy tiye kedav noisef ba'ulam so then it's critical that the revelation we will achieve at the time of Mashiach, just as it is not superimposed over me, and it's normal and natural for my eye to see godliness in the time of Mashiach, likewise, the Elikus cannot be superimposed onto the world. It has to become a natural component of the natural world when Mashiach comes. Which means, So if I do a mitzvah, what happens if I do a mitzvah? there's a world, inside that world, I do a mitzvah. By doing that mitzvah inside the world, I inject some Eloi into the world. But the world is the world, and the mitzvah is a mitzvah, and the mitzvah channels an additional light into the world that doesn't naturally belong in the world. But really the goal is, that a mitzvah should not just superimpose eluk onto the world, but that the mitzvah should reconstitute the world so that it becomes a place of godliness. So that's why the Al emphasizes. That the Giloi of Ein Soif, of infinite godliness, that will happen in the time of Mashiach is contingent not only on mitzvahs, but specifically on mitzvahs performed during the period of Godus, Because there's something about those mitzvahs that adds a quality to the experience of mitzvahs that makes them seep into the very fibers of this world, so that the world becomes a place of godliness, and not only becomes a place, but retroactively reveals that it was always intended to be a place of godliness. So what do we have in those mitzvahs that we do during the course of galus that puts them at a different level to ordinary mitzvahs, let's say, done during the time of the base, HaMikdash? So let's first understand generally the idea that mitzvahs do not superimpose divine energy onto the world, but that they actually rewire the world to become a different reality. So to understand that, we know that tachlis b'ri u'bishvil We know very well that the entire purpose for which the world was created was for yidden to fulfill Torah and mitzvahs. yifalu mitzvah gilo Or to put it into different words, the entire purpose of creation is that we, via the channels of Torah and mitzvahs, should reveal godliness in this world. Aha! So if that's the case, each time we do a mitzvah or learn Torah, and we now bring godliness into the world, it is fundamentally not superimposing. If the purpose of the world was, as we suggested originally, to block godliness, then every time you bring godliness into the picture, you're playing with the original reality, and you're shifting it in an unnatural way. But as soon as we recognize that the entire purpose of creation was that we should reveal godliness in this world through Torah and mitzvahs, then every single time I do a mitzvah, I'm peeling away a layer to say, that's actually what the world is really all about. That's in fact what it was intended for right from the beginning. Because seeing as we and the Torah we fulfill is the ultimate purpose for which the world was created, so it's effectively as if the world is demanding of us, new, do what this is all about. I'm only here as, as a stage. I'm only here as the props to allow you the opportunity to make you and I have a purpose. So the world's not getting in the way. The world isn't designed to interfere with Eloi Kus. The world is designed to be in a default state of interference only so that we could, we could reveal divine uh, godliness, absolute infinite godliness in this world, and the world actually expects it of us. But that's not the end of the story. That's an insufficient explanation to really get the the real depth of what's going on over here and how we can understand that although the world appears to be designed with an obstacle or a blurring of godliness, actually it's there to reveal godliness. Now, the truth is that as we've already described, the way that the world was created is to be Helem. That means its essential reality, at least now, is blockage of helem. Actually, if anything, the world, in its natural state, is designed, as we said before, to block elikus. So it's all very well for us to say, the world is saying, please, please get past me overcome my obstruction and bring godliness into the world that's all very nice but the fact of the matter is that's not what we said we said that the world is a revelation of it because where do you see that where do you see that where do you see that that's the purpose looks more like the purpose of the world is to interfere until we get the upper hand So we're back to square one because now it still seems to appear that the world has its reality and we have our challenge to overcome its reality which means that we have the challenge to superimpose godliness onto the world. And we want to say that's not the case. So how? How do we say that's not the case? How do we say Shmini? How do we say that the objective is to get the highest, highest, most unique, infinite element of godliness inside the world when actually the presentation of how the world appears seems to be quite different. It seems to be that the world is stuck in the mud, and our job is to vault over it and then splash it with godliness to the point that eventually it succumbs to the overwhelming godliness. So the clue to all of that is what the Alter Rebbe alluded to when he said that it's not just about us earning divine revelation by doing Torah mitzvahs, but it is specifically by doing Torah mitzvahs through the period of Golos. So again, what is unique about doing mitzvahs during Golos? What's unique? What, What does it call forth from us? to do a mitzvah during godless once we understand that we'll understand how it's really about making darkness shine we do know this well because in chesidus it says in many places that being in Godless and having all of the challenges that we do face during Godless, which are far greater than the challenges spiritually that we would have faced at the time of the base. Amikdash elicits mysterious nephesh from us in a way that is unprecedented. So what is unique about Godless is not just doing Torah mitzvahs, but what it takes to do Torah mitzvahs. The sacrifice required to fulfill Torah mitzvahs. And I know we often think of Messir's nefesh specifically in the context of inquisitions and pogroms and a Holocaust. But the truth is that the Messir's nefesh required to do Torah mitzvahs in today's Godless, where there is a prevailing uh, attitude in the world that discards so many of the morals and values of Torah, may be equally or perhaps even greater than that kind of Messir's nefesh. Either way you look at it, Golos presses us for Messias Nefesh. You don't just do Torah plain sailing. Even in the wonderful democratic realities that we live in, there's always something you have to fight for. And you have to fight really hard. And sometimes the battle is extremely subtle, so you really have to dig deep and find resources that you didn't necessarily expect that you were ever going to have to use. So, Now the Rebbe asks a beautiful question. Logically, how can Helem concealment ever be the cause of Giloy revelation? It doesn't seem to make sense. Surely, if things are shutting down, then the impact should be shutting down. How does it work that a dark reality elicits a light response? Think of it in real life. You know, if things are very overwhelming, the typical human response is to be depressed, anxious, angry. So, how is it that when things are overwhelming, your response is going to be empowered? doesn't seem to add up. Now you'll say, okay, look, the reality is that's how life works. Push people against the wall and they come back fighting stronger. Or as we say, where do you see the ultimate control of the human mind? In the least lively part of the human body, the heel. So there is this paradoxical reality, but still... Why, in fact, did Hashem design the world that you have Yisona or Minachoshech? That you have the the olive producing its oil when it's crushed. Why did Hashem design a world where darkness and adversity is dafka, what brings out the depth within us? Why? The explanation is fascinating. Because the goal of existence is not to blast away the world with divine revelation, but rather to create a sense of divine revelation that is real and genuine, and yet inside the reality of this world, that my physical eye can see God in us in the most normal way. So that's the goal. So Hashem in His infinite wisdom Designed the world in its current state To already reflect the future reality What's the future reality? Absolute godliness In the least likely place How's that going to happen? It's paradoxical So Hashem already reflects that into the reality of our world Uh, Seeing as the reason Hashem created a world of darkness is only to facilitate and precipitate much greater light and revelation. Afterwards, the value of light, not light that follows darkness, but light that emerges from darkness so because the goal is that the darkness will elicit the highest degree of revelation that's why the world our physical world like our eyes is designed right from the beginning to be the ultimate receiver for absolute divine revelation more even than Malachim. you would expect that Malachim should be better suited to great gilo no my eyes <laughs> that I usually use to, to watch the road when I'm driving those eyes are best suited to accommodate gilo in the highest form so now that we understand that the purpose is already reflected in our world as it is now not as it will be in its perfected state as it is now in its fractured state already reflects this theme What is reflected in this world? That the world is dark only in order to facilitate the tremendous infinite light that we will produce through Torah and Mitzvah. So therefore... If the goal is that our world, in its darkened state, will be the trigger to illuminate infinitely, in simple language, the trials and tribulations of living in a dark world will force us to come out guns blazing and do so much more for our Yiddish guides. So therefore, it turns out that the revelation at the end is going to be very much linked to this world. This world's not just a catalyst to be discarded at the end, it is a fundamental part of the process. It is the means by which Eloikus becomes revealed in this world. And so therefore, when that Eloikus is eventually revealed, the world is right there with it, because it was the facilitator. It was the vehicle. So now it is the course of revelation. That's why the Alter Rebbe highlights that what's going to be revealed in the future, ain't soif Hashem's infinite radiance, is completely dependent on teriyah Mitzvah specifically through the course of Golos. Because when you have Golos, that's when you have pushback. That's when you have resistance. When you have resistance, that's when you have to dig deeper. Once you dig deeper, you find mesiris nefesh, which essentially means that maneshama is indelibly linked to Hashem and there's no way out which effectively means, actually, that the whole world is there to bring me to my deepest place. It's not there to obstruct. It's not there as an, uh, as a, uh, an obstacle. It is there as a catalyst. So only when I see Messias Nefesh, only when I see the degree of commitment to elikus that a person has because of Golos, then I recognize what Golos is for and what the world is for. It was only there in order to facilitate that Messius Nefesh. Zoya And therefore we understand why it is that Torah Mitzvah, specifically through the challenging times of Golos, has the most profound impact on the physical world. To the extent that it radically changes the experience we have of this world to the point that my eyes are able to see Godliness. in In other words, what we're saying over here is the whole Shmini paradox is the paradox of having something which is completely beyond the system and yet totally anchored within the system. And what's significant about that is that we're trying to illustrate that absolute Elekos is anchored within the reality of our world. You want to get the greatest revelation of Hashem. You don't do that by meditating on a mountain or floating off in a a nod of an avihu kind of an experience. You're going to get that absolute by slogging away through the challenges of this world because they are designed to release that depth within us so now we can understand why we said right at the beginning That although Shmini follows consecutively and chronologically from the story of Parashat Tzav and the seven days of preparation, it actually has much more to do with the story of the kosher, non-kosher animals, birds and fish at the end of the parasha than it has to do with its immediate neighbor and chronological part of the story. What happened in Parashat Tzav in the seven days of preparing the Mishkan is that Aaron and his sons, Achieved everything that is humanly possible in terms of creating a space for Hashem which means that they were even able to bring down whatever degrees of eliurs human endeavor can reach. They perfected the seven level series they perfected whatever you could achieve of godliness in human terms.. I'll call this. But all of that was only a preparation for what was going to happen on the eighth day, which is a radically different experience. Now it's Hashem coming down into the, into the Mishkan in Hashem's terms. So what happens on the 8th day? What happens on the 8th day is now all of the effort that, the, that Aaron and his sons and the whole B'nai Yisrael made to prepare this Mishkan, all of that facilitates so that when the Eloikus, which is beyond the world, enters on Yom hashmini it enters. It enters fully. So what's Parashat Tzav all about? prep before you get to that great paradox, before you reach that incredible revelation of Godliness inside the physical world. Whereas, later on in the parasha, we start to tell me which animals, birds and fish I may or may not eat. That's exactly on the theme of Shmini. It's not a prep for Shmini. It is the theme of Shmini. Why? Because... Remember, we said that the whole purpose of everything is that we should be able to serve Hashem in such a way that we create Gilo in this world. And not just any Gilo but the ultimate Gilo Eloi ain't so if mamash to be revealed in this world. That means that we want to bring into this world a level of Eloi that is beyond anything that could be created or defined. And we're going to grab it and bring it into our reality. How? The only way it can happen is we said there has to be darkness. That's what we said. In order to facilitate us bringing about Gilo there has to be darkness for us to fight. And what is darkness if not non kosher food, non kosher creatures, creatures that are wired to be impure? In spite of their existence, and in spite of the fact that these things exist, they exist with a clarity. This is where we may go. This is where we may not go. This is These are the battle lines. This is where I have to have my personal mysterious nefesh not to get caught up in that world like the famous saying of Chazal that a person should never say oh I would never eat Chazal never I would never eat Chazal it's disgusting I would never touch it no you're supposed to say I would touch it it's a battle but I'm not going to do it I'm not going to succumb because I'm dedicated to Hashem the darkness is going to bring out my dedication so the to put it into different words, the minute I resist having something, even if I've never had the inclination, but I tell myself, I would perhaps eat that stuff, but Hashem says no, at that point, I bring a into that realm as well, into that incredibly dark space of this world. It now has a recourse in it. Okay. but Interestingly, out of all of the mitzvahs in the Torah, it's specifically when it comes to the laws of kosher and non-kosher animals that that's when the Midrash tells us that the purpose of all mitzvahs is to refine us. Interesting. Here we are talking about things that we'll avoid, but it's to refine not only us, but in fact the world around us as well. So taking this as an example, which represents all of darkness in the world where teriyah mitzvah helps me to see the reflection within darkness of its purpose i don't see darkness just as darkness i see darkness as its purpose in in other words every time there's that challenge every time there's that darkness i have no choice i have to make a call i have to make a statement to the world or at least to myself that i do what hashem wants serious nefesh Completely in boots and all. I'm absolutely dedicated. So what was the purpose of the darkness? Not to be dark. But to bring out that giloi within myself. And then giloi in the world. So that's what shmini is. Shmini is when the world looks dark. Shmini looks when I have challenges. And I stand up to those challenges. And I remain steadfast. And I'm committed to Hashem. That illustrates, and not just to me, but to the whole world, a giloy elikus, a, a revelation of Godness that is incredible, until the world itself becomes shmini. It becomes this hybrid of absolute elikus ein soif, in the here and now. The elikus is part and parcel of the normal world. You can see it with normal eyes and there's no surprise. This will also help us to understand a very intriguing medrash that says that in the story of the non Kosh animals is an allusion to various nations. The medrash tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu saw all the shenanigans of the various nations of history in the story of the non Kosh animals. The Medrash goes through the various nations that persecuted the Jewish people and what the nature of their persecutions were and the specific darkness associated with each. Why is that discussed? Yeah? Because now you see it all together. It's Pasha Shmini. The parasha that illustrates how in the time of Mashiach, there's going to be the revelation of this eighth dimension which is completely beyond anything, but yet it will be absolutely at home in this world. Where do we talk about this? In the parasha that speaks about so much darkness because it's that darkness of Golos that precipitates and facilitates us being able to reveal this level of edikos. Okay, see my medrash, and the medrash there concludes, Fascinating! It says the chazer, the most objectionable animal that exists for Jewish people, the ultimate treif represents who? Edom. Edom is the descendants of Esav. Why? Because that is the one that's going to return Jews to their greatness. That's why Edom is called the chazer because he's going to bring Jews back to the greatness. The ones who persecuted us in the most brutal way for two thousand years, more than any other of our enemies from the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash to the gulags and the Holocaust, is going to bring Jews back to our greatness. As the Pasuk says, that the saviors will come up to the mountain of, uh, of Zion and they will judge the mountain of Esav, and then Hashem will, ruin, will reign supreme, which is, of course, talking about the time of Mashiach through our challenges. I think the take-home message of here is very clear, Very often in life, particularly in the modern world, we feel that challenges are overwhelming and perhaps we have to just step down and not be so harsh on ourselves. And Heather Ebert is saying every single challenge is an opportunity to reveal the depth of our neshama and ein soif, giloyalikus in this world, that it should become part and parcel of the reality of our world. We make Mashiach a reality every single time that we stand up to the challenges that we face spiritually.